That the truth though when you've been struggling all your life to make it right that's how a superhero learns how to fly that's just a fact of life as a matter of fact that's also how a toddler learns to drive let me, let me explain what I mean to you the first family vacation that we ever took just the four of us my wife Julie our kids Emily and Joseph Emily was about eight Joseph was about six we got in our SUV and motored all the way to the Grand Canyon. This was a trip of Griswoldian proportions. <laughs> it was an amazing vacation, a great time. And I have to say that at that age, our kids were unbelievable road warriors. We drove for hours all the way out of the state of Texas, spent the night in Las Cruces. They played games kept a journal of the trip, drew pictures. We didn't even really use the DVD player that we had brought along as a last resort. Nobody had even heard of an iPad at this time. And our kids did a phenomenal job. But it was not always that way. As a matter of fact, when Joseph was just an infant, we were going home to see Julie's family in Mississippi. We were living in the Dallas-Fort Worth area at the time, and it was about a eight and a half, nine hour trip, and I had an idea. I said, Julie, you know what we ought to do because Joseph's so young, we should load up and drive through the night so the kids will sleep. And she said, honey, you're a genius. I said, I know, I don't like to brag, but it's true, I am. And so at the time I was doing singles ministry and we had a, a group of singles that were having kind of a Christmas open house get together at one of their homes and we said we'll go to the open house load the kids up and then go to Mississippi because I'm a genius well sure enough the night arrived and we went to the open house Emily and Joseph were on their best behavior they were cute and the singles were like oh it's so awesome and finally the time came for us to get in the car and begin the drive to Mississippi we strapped both of them in their car seats pulled away from the curb, and had gone about a mile and a half down the road when Joseph began to kind of whine a little bit, and he kind of he started to get uncomfortable, and he kind of started to cry, and I was like, honey, this is not a great start for a genius plan like this, and she said, just keep going. Once we get on the highway, he'll kind of calm down, and the rhythm of the road, he'll go to sleep. I said, okay. Three hours later in Shreveport, Louisiana, Joseph was still screaming at the top of his lungs. I mean, and had screamed the entire trip. Now, after about 30 or 45 minutes, you kind of start to get a little angry. You're just kind of, this is terrible. I'm supposed to be a genius. And he will not 
shut up. Do you think your parents would know if we left him in Louisiana? And Julie said, no, just keep going. But after three hours, you're completely punch drunk silly. You're just, this is nuts. I can't believe it. He's screaming in the backseat. And I'm just like, this is crazy. We're just going to keep driving for nine more hours. This is great. I'm such a genius. But I can tell you that it was through that trip and several more like it that we got to the point where the Grand Canyon was a great trip because the struggle is real and many times the struggle is worth it. I want everybody to give me a little international sign of the hashtag, if you would, please. Give me one of these and tell your neighbor, the struggle is real. The struggle is absolutely real. And as we begin this series of messages this morning coming out of our Easter weekend celebration last week, we're going to find that God has called us and more than just called us, he equips us for the struggles. Specifically over the next few weeks, I want us as a church family to discover how to really truly embrace the struggles that matter, but also to escape the struggles that hinder, because there are a lot of struggles that are unnecessary. There are a lot of them that we don't need in our lives, but sometimes we or other people around us can create them, and those we need to escape. And in order to begin this this morning, we're going to kind of establish some ground rules and kind of a, a baseline for this. And in the book of James chapter 1, God tells us something very, very powerful about struggle, about the fact of what he wants to do as we and when we struggle. Look at this. The Bible says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. Now what God is calling us into at this point is the reality that it's only when we struggle that we're strengthened. It's only when we struggle that we grow, that we advance, that we progress, that we develop. And so he calls us here to change our perspective on the struggles so that we change our posture and then our performance in and through the struggles. You see, a lot of times we stop at the superficial. We stop at the surface of the struggle and we focus on the inconvenience, the, the discomfort, many times even the very real pain of a struggle, when in reality God says, use those struggles, allow him to use those struggles in our lives for his glory and our good. Very specifically, that's how a superhero learns how to fly. When you've been struggling all your life, trying to make it right, turn your pain into power, that's how a superhero learns to fly. Now, the Bible doesn't use the term superhero, but that principle transcends. That principle translates. And specifically, God's given us a roadmap to this in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 6, God tells us something very powerful about our struggles, and it's important as we're beginning to shift our perspective, as we're beginning to kind of start to see our struggles differently, that we understand the truth and the reality of our struggles. Check this out. Ephesians 6, 12 says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, 
against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So if you've got a struggle this morning, it may involve another person, it may involve circumstances or a situation, but ultimately that is symptomatic of the greater struggle underlying what you can see, what is obvious. Here's what God is saying. All struggle is spiritual struggle. All struggle is spiritual struggle in its very essence, in its nature. So, for example, if you have a three-year-old child in your household, and that three-year-old looks back at you with malice in her eyes and stomps her feet and says, no, mommy, woe up, woe up, and recognize that is a spiritual struggle going on right there. That's a spiritual issue. It's known as the depravity of humanity. And that three-year-old is completely depraved. Now, some of you might have trouble with that. Oh, not my little angel. Yes, your little angel is completely depraved. I don't know who coined the term the terrible twos. Two is a layup compared to three. Three is where you start to see the dark underbelly of humanity. And so it's, in, it's important in this struggle to start to see this as a spiritual issue. Don't do like I did. This is what I did when Emily was three years old and she stomped her foot at Julie or at me and said, no, I was like, you must be out your mind. I'm not losing to anything this small. I'll take you out and make another one that looks just like you and nobody will ever know. Now, I said this to myself. I didn't say that to her. But that's a spiritual struggle as a husband to put Julie's wants, needs, and desires above my own. That's a spiritual struggle. So for Julie, her struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not, it's not just about me, but it's about what? The authorities, the rulers, and the powers of this dark world working within me. It is a spiritual struggle. That's the reality of it. Now, it would be one thing for us to get this word from God and to say, okay, all struggle is spiritual struggle. Okay, I start to kind of, I can, I can start to get my mind around that, but what do I do with it? What, what do I do about that? And fortunately, in his grace, in his unconditional love, God follows this thought up with a roadmap of exactly what we are to do about it. We're going to begin this this weekend, but also continue it over into next weekend. But as this passage continues in verse 13 of Ephesians chapter 6, look at what it says. It says, therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will be standing firm. Put on every piece of God's armor. So what God's saying here is you got to know that this battle is real. You're in it. I'm in it. All God's chilling are in this battle. And so it's important for us to prepare for battle, to really and truly suit up and get ready 
to fight the good fight. You don't walk into a battle. You don't walk into a fight wearing street clothes. You gear up. And so it's important for us as we think about Easter last weekend and we think about what that really and truly represents and what that means Monday through Saturday throughout the rest of the year. If Easter's real on that day, then it's got to mean something the rest of the year. And that's what God's getting at here. Look at what he says. You'll be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil, and then after the battle, you will be standing firm. This is a promise from God. When you put on the full armor of God, when you walk in a relationship with Christ, you will be standing firm. How do we know that? Because of Easter. Because Jesus rose from the dead, he defeated death, and he subdued sin once and for all. Anyone who steps into that relationship with him is a co-victor in the war. Anyone is a co-victor in the war against death, in the war against sin. Jesus won it for all time. And, make no mistake about it, there will be battles. There will be skirmishes along the way. But did you see that promise? You will be standing firm. You will be standing. Tell your neighbor right now, like you mean it, like Easter really happened, tell him, you will be standing. You will be standing. Whatever your struggle might be. It's been really interesting over the last few months as Spur leadership has ramped up throughout our church and, and beyond into the city of Austin and beyond, one of the things that we've heard over and over and over and over again is the struggle for work and family balance. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. I don't know anyone who has completely whipped that battle. I don't know anybody who's won that once and for all, no problems going forward. It's part of the human condition. We all wrestle with that. That's why, as a matter of fact, this week at the next Spur Luncheon on Friday, Vicki Strong, as you heard about, she's the wife of Coach Charlie Strong, the UT football coach. She's going to be speaking in a conversation that I'm going to moderate about work-family balance. So Spur leadership is about leaders in the marketplace and leaders in the home. So anybody who's ever wrestled with work-family balance, Friday is for you. You can register, go online. We need to know how many people are coming for food and that sort of good thing. But that's part of the struggle is real. That's part of what we're all about as a church is helping equip and call people up to the higher level that God has created us for. Now, what does it mean to put on the full armor of God? What, what does that look like? Look at verse 14 of Ephesians chapter 6. It says, stand your ground putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. Now, you have to understand that term, the belt of truth. When we hear the word belt, we think about, you know, something that goes through the loops on our, on our britches and in our trousers. But this is actually a military term in the Greek New Testament. The belt of truth went underneath the man's garment, the, the warrior's garment, the belt of truth. Paul is drawing a picture here of that which goes underneath and gathers the tunic. Because remember, they wore long tunics, kind of shoulder to ground length. 
Warriors even came down to their knees, but they, they still gathered in that extra material so that it wasn't flowing and billowing when they went into battle and creating a bigger target that somebody could catch. The belt of truth gathers all that material in, but it also gathers what's underneath the tunic. If you want to go back to the book of Job, when God told Job, gird up your loins and now I will question you, it, it is something that goes underneath it is girding up everything that you really need to gird up before you go into battle. That is what Paul is talking about here. That's the belt of truth, of reality. But then he goes on and he talks about the body armor of God's righteousness. Other translations say the breastplate. Now, what does what the body armor, the, the breastplate, protect? It protects your vital organs, your heart, your lungs, your liver, your spleen, all of those kind of, those are the things that you better protect when you're going into battle. God's righteousness acts as a guard. Now, what does that mean, God's righteousness? That's one of those things, if we kind of skated by, you'd walk out of here, go to Luby's for lunch, and go, I don't even understand that. Well, to understand this verse, you've got to understand Easter. Remember, there on the cross, Christ exchanged his righteousness for our sin. And so anyone who accepts Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of their sins, in that cosmic transaction, God's righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, is transferred to our account. And so that means that that is now our bodyguard, our body armor, and that's what we live in. That's what we walk in. And so we don't have anything to hide or be ashamed of because we're walking in the righteousness of God. We do it imperfectly, to be sure. But we put that on and say, this is now my record. In essence, if God be for us, who can be against us? I don't have anything to hide if I'm walking in God's righteousness, if I'm living my life the way God created me to live my life. It's kind of like this. If a... You know, if your five-year-old yells at you, Mommy, I hate you, the, the mature mother looks at that little five-year-old and goes, Oh, we're having a meltdown. She doesn't really hate me. Of course, she, she loves me. I feed her. She doesn't hate me. Now, we're going to address this. We're going to leave Target where it's a public place and she's screaming, having this meltdown, and then we're going to get home and I'm going to let her cool down and we'll deal with it. But I'm not going to be the mother who goes, what? <gasps> My five-year-old hates me? What have I done wrong? I failed as a mother. This is horrible. This is terrible. No good. Very bad news. That's not a very mature response to a very immature tirade. You see, when you are in the right, you don't get offended. When you live ethically, morally, with integrity, you are protected from full frontal assaults. This is what Paul's saying here. You protect your vitals with truth and integrity. You protect your vitals spiritually with truth and integrity. And again, the word integrity means completeness or wholeness. It's not only ethics and, and honesty, that's a part of it, but that completeness that God created you to live in and to walk in. You're not hiding things from people. You're not one way with this group and another way with that group. 
You are complete. You are honest. You are real. You're authentically who God created you to be and is calling you to become. And that's how you protect your vitals. That, that's the, the armor of God's righteousness. Proverbs 4.23 says this, Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Whatever you do, guard your heart. Guard your heart. How many of you here today are not married? You're, you're not married. You may be a student or you're a single adult. You're not married, but maybe you think it could be that God may want you to be at some point in the future. You would like to be at some point in the future. Believe me when I tell you, if you're going to get married the way God wants you to get married, the struggle is real. I mean, it's going to take a struggle. Last night I had the great privilege of performing a wedding for, for a great young couple. Young, I mean, just out of college about a year. Man, they, they were beaming with hope and promise. And, and, and man, he had, he had combed his hair, shaved, and was bathed, you know, and he, he was standing down the front, and then all of a sudden, man, here, here comes his bride. And I could tell from about two rows, she came down the center aisle of this church where the wedding was, and I could tell about two rows of pews down, man, her eyelashes were about four feet long coming off of her eyes, and, and, and she was you know, a radiant, beautiful bride, and they gathered at the front. And I could tell, you know, as the, as the officiating minister, we were kind of right there, and I could tell they had both just had some mints right before the ceremony began. And it was awesome. It was great. And that couple last night has no fat clue <laughs> what awaits them. Because let me ask you this. How many of you are married? Let me see a show of hands. How many of you know that there's a difference between a wedding and a marriage? Somebody help me preach. <laughs> you know? Listen. And today, they woke up next to each other after their wedding night, and they were married. I promise you this, this morning when they woke up, their breath was not as fresh as it was when they met at the altar. Last night, as far as breath goes, last night's probably about as good as it's going to get for the rest of their lives. The struggle is real. But you know what? They're doing it, man. They, they, they have entered the fray and they've said we will take a shot we will step into this and, and he has said I'm going to do everything I can to be a godly husband and to love her the way Christ loves the church she says even when she takes off those false eyelashes <laughs> I'm going to do everything I can to love him the way the church is supposed to love Christ and we're going to we're going to do everything we can the struggle is real but believe me when I tell you like I told them, the struggle is worth it. The struggle is real, but the struggle is worth it. When you put on the full armor of God, when you enter into that battle, you guard your heart above all else because as your heart goes, so goes your life. So that means you're careful about who you give it to. That means you're careful about what you take in, what you read, what you watch. Guard your heart. Protect it. It's the wellspring of everything in your life. Be careful about who you listen to. Be careful about the people you hang with and run with. Guard your heart, for it determines the course of your life. Back to Ephesians chapter 6. Paul is continuing this metaphor of the armor of God, and he says, Now, for shoes, for shoes, 
for shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. Shoes. I'll be honest with you, I was a little disappointed when I came across this the first time. I mean, I, li I like armor, you know? Soldiers, swords, shields, body armor. Protect these big old pecs. How do you do that? But then he says, for shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. What does he mean, the good news? The good news is the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. John chapter 3, verse 16. Make sure that you understand this is the gospel. What does it say? For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son, Easter, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. The good news. God gave his only son, Jesus, to die on the cross, to become my sin, your sin, and to die the death that was rightfully ours. Because remember, we, as we talked about, he endured our sin. He took it on, therefore he paid the consequences, he paid the penalty for that sin, which is death. But then when he rose again, he rose with the offer of new life so that anyone who believes in him would never die, but would have eternal life. Now remember, eternal life includes when you die, but is not limited to when you die. Eternal life starts right here and right now. So it's right here, right now, eternal life, and then and there, eternal life. That's the good news. Now go back to Ephesians chapter 6. So we put on shoes that are the peace that comes from the good news. So when you understand and you have stepped into the good news and you've appropriated it, you said, I will follow Christ. I accept his death, burial, and resurrection as my own because that should have been me on the cross. But he rose from the dead in a way that I couldn't have done on my own. And so I accept his forgiveness. I accept his gift of grace. You put that on now all of a sudden you have really changed your perspective. Everything's different in the good news. You start to understand now that it's not just about this moment and this struggle right here, right now. It's about this moment and this struggle as it plays out across eternity. And all of a sudden you kind of go, oh, you know what? The fact that that person who is clearly challenged just cut me off in traffic in the grand scope of eternity, I should not call them an idiot. <laughs> you know, the fact that my teenager lives like a complete slob and clothes are all over her room that I paid for, that I gave her, In the grand scope of eternity, she's going to have to buy her own. <laughs> you know, the fact that my wife and I aren't getting along in the grand scope of eternity really does matter because this is a relationship that God ordained and called to 
communicate to the rest of the world how much he loves everybody, so I'm going to do something about that. Yeah, the struggle is real, but the struggle is worth it. You see, the gospel changes our perspective. And when we put on the shoes of the gospel, then our posture is changed. You know, if you ever do anything athletic, what do they tell you? Ready position. Feet about shoulder width apart. One a little bit behind the other. And you're, you're ready to move. Because if you're like this, it's easy to be toppled. You know, if you're like this, you can't move. But if you're like this, say, for instance, playing basketball, man, you're in triple threat position. You can shoot. You can pass. You can drive. Quick as a cat. <laughs> now, now, some of us have put our feet inside those gospel shoes. Some of us have stepped into the gospel personally and definitively. And we said, you know what? I'm going to follow Christ. But sometimes we need to kind of kind of relace those shoes, don't we? We need to kind of kind of strap it on a little bit more and tighten it up a little bit and go, "You know what? That gospel thing, it really matters." That gospel thing, it it, it really matters on Monday morning when I go back into class and and I've got a teacher who is completely unreasonable. I'm I'm going to I'm going to strap that on a little tighter. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to stand in the gospel, peace. Because remember, the gospel tells us that Jesus won the war. And Paul tells us because he won the war, when we put on the full armor of God, we will still be standing when the battles are done. When the skirmishes and the dust have cleared, we will still be standing because of who Jesus is because of what he accomplished in and through the cross. But you know, there are other people that have never stepped into those shoes. There are other people that, that have never put on those shoes of the gospel. And so Paul's saying here, set your footing in the gospel if you want to talk about the armor, make sure that it, it starts at the very feet, at the foundation of everything else with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because then you change your perspective on the struggle. And because you realize the war has been won, this battle, this skirmish, he will use for my benefit. He will use it for his glory and for my good. And all of a sudden, the struggle changes. It's not just about the inconvenience. It's not just about the pain. It's not just about the struggle. It's about what God wants to do in and through the struggle. When you really and truly set your feet in the shoes of the peace of the gospel of Jesus Christ changes everything. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. And it's a moment that matters because it's a moment that we believe, that we've prayed toward where God is inviting some of you into that relationship for the first time. To not just 
be window shopping for those shoes of the gospel, but to really and truly put them on personally and definitively. A lot of us have seen those shoes. We've heard about them. We know about Jesus, but we've never really gotten to know him. If that's you today, we want to invite you to step into that, to step into that relationship, to just pray a prayer of beginning, a prayer of committing your life to him in response to the fact that he gave his life for you. Just right where you're sitting, if that's you, then you just, you just pray this prayer in your own words, something like this. Just say, Jesus, I need you. I give you my life in exchange for yours. Jesus, I confess my sin and I accept your forgiveness. I accept personally the victory, the winning of the war that you accomplished when you rose from the dead. And I will live my life with you forever, starting right here, right now. Jesus, I pray this prayer in your name. I want to ask you just for a moment to remain in a spirit of prayer with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. But if that was your prayer today, just now for the first time and you meant it, you need to know this is the greatest moment in your life. And it's important that you understand there will come another moment probably on another day when you begin to wonder, you're like, is that really real? Did that, did that, you need to know this is real, that God did this. Once and for all. And so in this moment, I want to invite you just to mark it, just to stamp it indelibly in your mind and in your heart. As our heads are bowed and eyes are closed in this sacred moment, if you would just raise your hand quietly, but definitively, raise it up high over your head and just hold it there for a moment to mark this moment, to stamp it in your mind and in your heart. And for us as a church, you need to know there's nothing more important. And so as a church, we welcome you. And as you put your hands down, we put our hands together to tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.